are heading into Babylonian captivity. That's Jeremiah's message in the 52 chapters that bear the book that bears his name. Judah had sinned, and as a result, they were going into Babylonian captivity for 70 years, according to Jeremiah 25, 7 through 11. Jeremiah continues to cry out to God on their behalf, but they had sealed their fate in rebellion and disobedience. And naturally, that would be their lot. You read the 52 chapters that make up the book of Jeremiah. And what you find is because of the sins of Judah, namely idolatry, her false prophets, rebellion to the covenant and living in a way in total opposition to God. What you find is the people are heading into slavery and there's nothing that they can do about it. Jeremiah cries out for the people and God essentially tells the prophet, stop crying out for them. I won't change my mind. There's nothing they can do to reverse my course. A lot of times what you find people saying about Jeremiah is that he is the weeping prophet because he cries on behalf of the people so often. There are passages in Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 11 and verse 14 that have him crying out to God on behalf of the people. And though he cries, God says, you won't be heard in this regard. They're going into captivity. But another reason why Jeremiah may be known as the weeping prophet are not just the select scenes throughout the book of Jeremiah where he's weeping for the people, but also the book of Lamentation. And if you have your Bible tonight, go ahead and turn to Lamentations chapter three. The book of Lamentations is just that. It's the second really half of Jeremiah's book. In some manuscripts, the books are attached together. He's been known as the historical author of the book. And in five short chapters, it's really an acrostic poem in Hebrew as Jeremiah weeps for the people from A to Z. He's crying out to God because they're going into captivity. And it may be the lament of the entire nation as the people weep because of what God's going to do to them as a result of their rebellion toward him. It's the darkest book in the Old Testament. It may be very well the darkest book in the Bible. You read the book of Jeremiah and you've heard that the people are going into captivity. But what your eyes read and what you see when you get to the book of Lamentations is just astounding. The people are looking for relief, but they find none. Lamentation 117 and 121. God in his anger says he hands them over to grief and there is no relief for them. Lamentations chapter two, verses one through four. The children are hungry. Nobody gives them anything to eat and children wander through the streets thirsty. Nobody gives them anything to drink. Lamentations 2, 11 through 12. The women and the men become so hungry as they are barricaded, they start to practice cannibalism. They begin to eat their children just to survive. Lamentations chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Chapter 5 and verse 11 says the women are abused. Verse 12 says that the men are also abused. The young men are put to work in 513 and the older men have left the city. Lamentations 5 and verse 14. It's a book of gloom, doom, destruction. There's really relatively little positive in the book as God's people had disobeyed God. They've earned their punishment and that's where they're headed. And yet right in the middle of this book, I mean, right in the dead center in Lamentations chapter three, verses 22 through 24, you've got one of the most hopeful passages in all of the Bible. And it would be an amazing passage to sing, as we've just done a moment ago, or even to read if it were anywhere. But especially the fact that it's in this dark book, in this scene where it seems that all hope is lost. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. That passage would give hope to any group of people, but especially these people and especially at this time. 
The title of tonight's lesson is Seeing God Through Tearful Eyes, based on what you read in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. And what I want us to do tonight is see God from Jeremiah's perspective in this passage, in a time of tears, in a time of lament, in a time of sorrow. But also, when we have those same times, we can come to these same passages and really derive that same hope. Five things we should see about God in these times of tears that will allow us to maintain or keep our hope and vigor in God. Much of what we'll do tonight will be from chapter 3, but all of it will come directly from the book of Lamentations. If you have your Bible, stay in Lamentations chapter 3, and let's begin in verse 22. Here's number one. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord, it never ends. Now, depending on your translation, this might be rendered differently. The King James and New King James talks about the mercies of God. The New American Standard talks about his loving kindness. The ESV is the translation on which the song is based and on which our point is based tonight. The steadfast love. The NIV talks about his loyal love. And what all of those English translations are trying to do is take one Hebrew word that's spelled in English, H-E-S-E-D, has said it means God's loyal love toward his people. And they're trying to communicate that to us in English. But what it means is God enters a covenant with his people. And no matter what his people do, God loves them still. Whatever your English translation does with verse 22 is communicating the truth about that word. God's loyal love, his covenant love. It never ends. It says to people like you and me and to to Judah when they were in Babylonian captivity, God will be who God is no matter what we do toward him or no matter who we become. So Psalm 100 and verse five, the psalmist says the steadfast of the Lord is unending. His faithfulness endures toward all generations. The people in Judah needed to know this as they were being dragged off in chains. God hadn't changed his mind about them. The mercies or the steadfast love of the Lord says this. When you come into a covenant relationship with God, when you become a part of his people, there's a special love devoted to those people in that relationship. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel and the New Testament is the New Testament church. And Jeremiah says in Lamentations 322, that continual loyal covenant love, it never, ever ends. And they needed to know that. You remember what Moses asked God in Exodus 33, 18 through 20. God, show me your glory. And what was God's response to Moses? No, no man can see my glory and live, God says. But I will do this. I'll let my glory pass before you and hide you in the cleft of the rock. And as he passes by Moses, he utters this phrase in Exodus 34, beginning with verse six. He says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, gracious, merciful, long suffering. And here's our phrase again, abounding in steadfast love. Exodus 34 and verse six. God says, that's exactly who I am. Now, Moses needed to hear those words. And surely the people that came out of Egyptian bondage with Moses, they would have received those words and been excited. And they would have known of God's steadfast and loyal love because they had just been brought out of Egyptian captivity with the 10 plagues. But imagine being a servant of God in Judah during the time of the Babylonian captivity. Imagine seeing your children starving to death, stepping over dead bodies in the street, seeing the temple on fire and everything, you know, up in flames. And then Jeremiah writes these words to you. God hadn't stopped loving you. The steadfast love of the Lord. It never ceases. It says to us, we should always be careful about judging God based on our circumstances. But instead, we should judge our circumstances based on our God. We always err and misdiagnose our status with the divine when we say, I know how God feels about me because I'm in this situation, whether good or bad, to judge our circumstances or our our relationship with God based on our circumstances, based on how things are going. I know God's upset with me and I've lost his love is to fail to appreciate Lamentations 322. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 56 and verse nine, this I know that God is for me. And the reality is he's always for his people. His steadfast love never comes to an end. It doesn't start and stop. It's continual. It's ever abiding. And Judah needed to see that even through tear filled eyes. In August of 2021, the lead story in the Christianity Today magazine was about the Nigerian girls that had been abducted by a militant group. 300 of them, 200 have been returned. 100 to this day are still unaccounted for. It brought up the hashtag campaign, hashtag bring back our girls. They found 200 of these girls and they interviewed them about their experiences. They had been captured and abducted and they talked about how they were able to make it through. The title of the article was the girls who would not bow. And of the 200 that they had back, they said, this is how we made it through. We whispered prayers in our cups of water at night. They said we sung hymns together and we memorized parts of the Bible through a Bible that had been smuggled into the camp. They memorized the entire book of Job and wrote out passages by hand. They said Luke, two was a favorite of theirs. What they were doing in those moments was in a time in which they were trying to be convinced by their circumstances that God had abandoned them, that God no longer loved them. They were reminding themselves of the truth of Lamentation 322 concerning who God is. The steadfast, loyal love of the Lord, it never, ever ceases. It doesn't come to an end. You know Psalm 23, and you probably memorized it in the King James. Psalm 23 and verse 6, he says, goodness and mercy will follow me how long? All the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That goodness and mercy in the King James, that mercy is this word, the steadfast love. And it's interesting. David says his goodness and his mercy will literally chase me down all the days of my life. That's just ironic to me because most people in the world think we've got to find God's love. I've got to seek it out and find it out. But David says, no, it's literally chasing me down, looking for a home in my heart to take up residence within me. And while God can't make us open up the doors of our hearts, we can't stop God from knocking because he will. The first thing the people needed to know that were in Babylonian captivity because of their own sins, their own rebellion was this. The steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. It never comes to an end. The next time you and I find ourselves trying to judge our relationship with God based on our circumstances, we need to be reminded that in Christ we found a love that we cannot lose. It doesn't mean whatever we do is okay with God, but it does mean this. He will never stop loving his people. Jeremiah 31 in verse three, he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. They were suffering because of their sins. It was all their fault. And God said, no matter what you do toward me, I'll be true and my part of the covenant toward you. Here's number two. Lamentations chapter three is verse 23. Seeing God through tearful eyes means, yes, the steadfast love never ends. But secondly, his mercies are new on a daily basis. His mercies are new daily. You remember when Job was suffering and in Job chapter seven in verse four, Job says, I toss on and on throughout the night. But if I can just make it to daybreak and you know why Job said that, I mean, if you've ever been sick before, you realize for whatever reason, psychologically, everything gets better. If you can just make it to the daylight, that's how Job felt. And you read these words from Jeremiah. His mercies are new every morning. It's a way of saying, if I can just make it toward the next day, I know what will be awaiting me. And that is there'll be new mercies. What does David say in Psalm 30 and verse five? Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That doesn't mean there's anything magical about the sun and that if we find ourselves in sin in 24 hours, it'll all lapse and we start over clean. No, when we need to confess and come clean about sin, that's exactly what we need to do. But it does mean this. Get Jeremiah's word picture about God. His mercies are new every morning with God every day. There's a fresh start if we'll take it. 
Every 24 hours, God says, I'll give you a clean slate. You and I can start over together again. And Judah desperately needed to hear this message. Everything around them said, you know, you've gone too far. God's done with you. You've blown it. You've outrun his forgiveness. And Jeremiah says his mercies are new every morning. Every morning, God gives a new opportunity, a new chance to serve him and to follow him. Don't spurn that opportunity, but instead latch on to it and lay hold of it. His mercies are new every morning. And that's great news for us. Most of us eat at least one meal a day, at least one. And if somebody said to you, hey, you don't need to eat breakfast this morning. You ate breakfast yesterday. You say, well, I'm hungry today. And you say the same thing about dinner. And God realizes that same thing about us in difficulty and hardship. God doesn't say to you and me, hey, I gave you mercy last week. I gave you steadfast love five years ago. Hey, you prayed about comfort and mercy. The last trial you faced, God says, I know you need it continually and I'm here to provide it for you on a daily and regular basis. So Hebrews 4, 16, when it says we can boldly approach the throne of grace to obtain mercy and help in our time of need. When is our time of need? It's every single day. And those mercies are new on a daily basis. What the people of Judah need to appreciate and what we need to appreciate is that we serve a God who offers up new mercies every 24 hours. These people need to know that God hadn't turned his back on them, though they had often turned their back on him, though they had rebelled against God. God says, guess what? I'm not going to quit you. We read the Old Testament and we read about faithful patriarchs like Abraham. And Abraham is a great man of faith. In fact, he's called the father of the faithful in Romans chapter four. But the reality is, if Lamentations 3:23 was not true, we'd never know Abraham. Because the day he lied, and he did, Genesis 12, 10 through 20, if God's mercies weren't new every day, he'd be forever forgotten. You know, Peter wrote two books of the New Testament. He preached the first gospel sermon and was a great part of getting the gospel into the Roman Empire. But if God's mercies weren't new every morning, the night he denied Jesus would have been his last night in fellowship with God. And he did that, Luke 22, 54 to 62. But God's mercies are new. The entire nation of Israel is named after Jacob. God says, I've got great things in store for you. Genesis 46, three. But if we served a baseball God, three strikes and you're out, you'd never know Jacob's name. He had many hang ups and fumbles and mistakes. But God's mercies are new every morning. And what about Paul? His 13 epistles sort of serve as the heartbeat of the New Testament. And as we studied this morning, you know where he came from and all the things that he did. And yet none of it disqualified him for service to God because God's mercies are new every single morning. You can have another chance with God. And Judah desperately needed to know that we need to remind ourselves of it. We don't outrun his love. We don't use it up. He continues to give it to us. The second verse in the book of Jude says that God's love and mercy and patience is multiplied. What does that mean? It means there's an overflowing abundance of it. God's not going to run out of it. And he supplies it for us every single day. Imagine waking up in Babylon and thinking to yourself, you know what? God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. I've sinned against God for the very last time. I promised God I wouldn't do this specific sin again. And yet here I am. And then you hear these words. His mercies are new. Every morning, they don't come to an end. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Here's number three tonight. Seeing God through tear filled eyes means that we always hope in God. That's verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. This word for portion means property. He's their heritage. In Psalm 16 and verse five, David says, the Lord is my portion and my lot. Or Psalm 16 and verse 2 concerning God, David says, I have no good apart from you. And now here's Jeremiah in Lamentation saying, 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. That means God is my everything, and therefore I will hope in him. In the ancient world, this is how it worked. If two nations fought against each other and one nation conquered the other, it was also assumed that in that battle, the nation that won also beat the gods of the other nation. And therefore, that God was no longer worthy of worship. Don't you know the Babylonians thought it was their they were responsible for Judah going into Babylonian captivity? Don't you know they thought that their God, Merduk, also defeated Yahweh and therefore he was no longer worthy of Israel's worship? Imagine being a Babylonian, dragging the Israelites off in chains and then hearing them recite or chant this verse. The Lord Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. They hadn't given up their hope. They hadn't thrown in the towel. They believed that they could still and still should hope in almighty God. And through tear filled eyes, we sometimes need to remind ourselves to do the very same thing in the Bible. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope isn't. You know, I hope I think I wish I'll make it through. It's expectancy. It's trusting that we can and will persevere based on the God we serve. It's a strong confidence. Psalm 118, verse 17 and 18. I will not die. I will live. God will see me through. That's what you have in Lamentations 324. Jesus has called our hope in First Timothy, chapter one and verse one. And in Colossians three and verse 11, he's called our all in all. And in Lamentations 324, Israel says the Lord is the reason for my hope. He keeps my expectations up. I won't be disappointed. Judah needed to know that they still had reason to be optimistic, that life hadn't been so bad for them that they should just give up altogether. Instead, they needed to cling to the rock, which was their God, who was going to see them out the other side. You know, we read passages like this and we know we should be people of hope. We sing a song. We have an anchor which keeps the soul based on Hebrews 6, 18 through 20. And everybody in this room, really everybody in the world has their anchor tied to something. We hope in something. Hebrews 618 says that by two immutable things, that's two unchanging things. It's impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. We read passages like that and then we look at our daily circumstances and we say, you know what? I hope in God, but I'm going to tell you, I just really don't like to get my hopes up. I don't want to be disappointed. I hope in God, but I sort of always expect the bare minimum. And just in case things don't work out, we reason like atheists without a God. If you're a Christian, you don't play it safe. You play it saved, realizing that God is your God and he will bring you through no matter what. One of the fascinating things about the Bible to me that I continue to see is that God never, ever, Old or New Testament, regardless of the covenant, God never promises shielding his people from difficulty. But he always promises his continual presence, which is far better. What does Psalm 23 and verse four say? Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why, David? Because you're with me. God has never promised that if you become my child, I'll shield you from life's difficulties. But he always promises his continual presence. And that's enough. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I'll hope in him no matter what happens. Never surrender your hope. If you're a Christian, you always retain your hope. There's a story about a girl. She had a terminal illness. She was about 20 years old. Her preacher came by to see her and he was talking about the things you normally talk to somebody about who's on their way out of this life and into eternity. They talked about her funeral service and how she expected things to go. She told him, look, when you bury me, I want to be wearing this. I would really like these songs sung at my memorial. I would really like you to use these passages of scripture. And if you could, please preach from these verses. And then right when the preacher was getting ready to leave, she says, and make sure when you put me in the casket that I have a fork in my hand. 
And he looked astounded. He said, well, what do you want with the fork? And then she told him the story. She said, my grandmother used to tell me that when she went to these fancy restaurants, she'd eat this big fancy meal. And right about the time the waiter or the waitress was coming to pick up the plates and the cups, I'd be ready to hand over everything, her grandma said. And then the waiter or the waitress would say, keep your fork. And whenever the waiter or the waitress said, keep your fork, her grandmother knew that meant something good was coming. Sweet potato pie, lemon cake, cheesecake, something good was coming. Keep your fork. She said, you make sure you bury me with the fork. And when people come to the memorial service and when they walk by the casket, let them weep. It's natural. They should do that. But when they ask why I have the fork in my hand, you remind them that for me, the best is yet to come. For the Christian, don't you hear Jeremiah telling these folks, therefore, I will hope in him. Keep your fork. Don't surrender hope. The best for the Christian is yet to come. And it was true for these individuals. They're heading off to Babylonian captivity. But the reality is in 70 years, they'll be home. And soon and very soon, their Messiah would come and deliver them from all of the hardship that was theirs and reverse all of the curses of Adam and put them in a right relationship with God. Christian, keep your fork no matter what, because for us, the best is yet to come. I was running yesterday and I was listening to a podcast and there was a preacher talking about a preacher who died a long time ago. And this preacher said on Sunday morning, sometimes he would wake up with what he called the preacher blues. He'd get ready to go and preach and he'd start having these thoughts early in the morning about, you know, this sermon's so dumb. Nobody's going to want to hear this. I should have picked something else to preach on. If you're a preacher, you know exactly what this feels like. But he said, you know what, every morning, he said, the way I got myself out of that is I started saying to myself, every time those kinds of thoughts came up, every time I had those doubts and questions, he said, I'd start asking myself this question. Have you received any fresh evidence in the middle of the night that suggests Jesus did not rise from the dead? Is there any new evidence that suggests that Jesus is still in the tomb? If he isn't there, if Jesus rose from the dead, it's all going to work out. If Jesus rose from the dead, you can have hope. What's the John Lennon quote? John Lennon says, in the end, everything will be okay. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Peter says, hope to the end for the revelation for the hope that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First Peter 1, 13. First Peter one and verse three, Peter says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercies has begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's incorruptible, unfading, that reserves that's reserved in heaven for you. And it never fades away. What Jeremiah teaches us is no matter what, no matter what happens, keep your hope in God. Now, here's number four. It's in Lamentations 3. This time it's 31 down through verse 33. And here's number four. Through tear-filled eyes, Judah needed to remember that God does not delight in punishment. In verse 31, he says he doesn't cast off forever. He says, though he causes grief in verse 32, he will again show his abundant and steadfast love. In verse 33, I don't afflict from the heart and I don't grieve the children of men. God had told Judah in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 26, 14 through 46, if you violate the covenant, if you disobey, you're going to go into captivity. There's going to be punishment. They had disobeyed the covenant. And here we are. They rebelled against God and the punishment that they were receiving is exactly what they deserve. But would you just notice what's said in verse 31, 32 and 33 about God on the worst day of Israel's life? They're learning from God first. Verse 31. God doesn't always retain his anger forever. He's angry for a moment, but not forever. Verse 32, his steadfast, loyal love. It continues. And then in verse 33, he doesn't afflict from his heart. Some translations say he doesn't afflict willingly. What does that mean about God? It means that God will punish. God will but he never does it with a smile. 
It's Ezekiel 18 and verse 32, Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, where God says to the people, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but instead desire that he would turn from his wicked way and live. Why will you die, O house of Israel? That's the God they serve. God does not delight in punishment. Sometimes we have trials in our life because of our health or because of other people. But when it's your fault, has it ever been just your fault and you start realizing, hey, where's the Bible passage that says God has comfort for me when it's my sin and I've blown it? Even then, Lamentations 3 says, you know, God, verse 33, he doesn't afflict from his heart. God doesn't take punish delight in punishing his people because that's not the God we serve. First Timothy two and verse four says God would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Second Peter three and verse nine, Peter says God's not willing that any should perish, but that everybody in the world would come to repentance. God's so serious about this that in Isaiah 28 and verse 21, he calls punishment his strange work. Just think about that. Why is punishment God's strange work? Because it's not what God normally does. It's not what he likes to do. He will do it, but he doesn't want to. If you rebel against God, if I rebel against God, he will damn our souls by our own admission. But he would rather it be the other way. John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. What does verse 17 say? God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why is that true? Because God does not delight in punishment. Judah's going off into Babylonian captivity, but I can tell you this. God's not happy about it. And when God has to chastise you and me and it's our fault, he's never happy about it. He doesn't want to do it. He wants us to turn from our ways and live. A hundred plus years before this happened to Judah, the northern kingdom rebelled as well. They went into captivity. Hosea 11 and verse 8 has God crying out about them. Oh, Ephraim, how can I give you up? My heart is turned within me. Before he flooded the world and the greatest human disaster known to man, it says God was grieved at his heart. Genesis 6 and verse 5. Why was that the case? Because when God sees people going away from him, he knows what his justice demands. But he really doesn't want to have to do it. We serve a God who doesn't delight in punishment. And just parenthetically, this is a note of warning and caution for us as God's people. God doesn't delight in punishment and neither should we. When we have to talk to people about their sin and condemnation and hell, whatever the sin is, we should always do it with tears in our eyes and a lump in our throat. If we get excited, I know some people's favorite thing about Jesus is that he flipped the tables. But listen, Jesus wept over that whole city, Luke 19, 41, before he ever did that. So before you flip the tables, weep over the tables that you plan to flip. God doesn't delight in punishment and neither should we. We should talk to people about hell the way Jesus did with sorrow in our hearts and tears in our eyes and beg them, please don't go that way because God doesn't want you to. Have you ever thought about this, how often the Bible says God was provoked to anger? Psalm 78, 58, Deuteronomy 32, 21, Jeremiah 8, 19. Sometimes you just read, especially in the Old Testament, and you'll find God was provoked to jealousy. God was provoked to anger. What does that mean? What does it mean to be provoked? And why does the Bible say something like that about God? You know what provoke means. Provoke means to be irritated towards something, to be stirred toward that end. And the way it works is this. Here's God's anger over here. God's loving, compassionate, long suffering. Israel just keeps sinning and they just keep pushing God and they keep pushing and they provoke him to anger. And then finally, judgment comes. But you just run the references on that Hebrew word for provoke. And the interesting thing is over and over again, God is provoked to anger. He is never provoked to love. You read in the Bible that God gets angry, but you never read God is anger. But you've read and you've known 
that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Oh, he has to be pushed to his anger, but never to his love. He afflicts with his hands, but never from his heart. It's not who he is. The last thing God wants to do is punish anybody because he really wants to save us. What the people in Jeremiah's day needed to know is that we serve a God who will punish, but he doesn't delight in it. It's the last thing he wants to do. He wants us to repent and turn and be saved. It's what he wanted then, and it's what he wants now. Here's the fifth and final thing tonight. It's in chapter 5 and verse 19. And it is that God rules forever. Lamentations 5:19 says that God reigns forever and his throne is from generation to generation. Again, the people that are heading into Babylonian captivity might feel like God doesn't reign, that God doesn't rule because things aren't going too well for them. But the truth is, God was reigning even when things weren't going their way. God rules forever. We talked this morning in the Revelation class of when did God start reigning? And that's a trick question. He never starts to reign and he never stops. He just reigns forever is who he is. These earthly kingdoms normally switch. Empires normally come and go about every hundred years. But Psalm 66 and verse 7 says God rules by his power forever. And that's great news for people on God's side, because what that means is if God rules forever and I find myself aligned with God, 2 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, if we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. His reign becomes ours. And through tear-filled eyes, we need to know and believe that we really are on the winning side. We serve a God that reigns no matter what. He's always in control. God rules in the kingdoms of men. Even the Babylonian captivity was under God's thumb and Babylon couldn't lift a finger unless God allowed them to. You know, sometimes during political season, Christians are worried and we should be. We should be concerned about godly leadership. I've known some Christians who they go to the ballot box. They're really not impressed with either candidate. And so they'll do. Listen, I didn't vote for anybody. I just wrote Jesus in the line. You know, people, maybe you've done that. I wrote God in. And, you know, that's holy and cute, but it's really an insult. God wouldn't dare come down from his heavenly throne to occupy an earthly one when he already reigns. Furthermore, God's not running for God. He just is. He wouldn't campaign or ask our permission to reign. Lamentations 519 says God reigns forever and his kingdom is from generation to generation. What does that mean? If I'm in captivity, shackled by change, you mean in this generation, that one too. You mean in a time when people want to pass every ounce of ungodliness that they can in that generation too. Through tear-filled eyes as we look at the world in which we live, and sometimes it feels like everything's getting away from divine supremacy. God wanted to remind Judah, I reign and rule forever and ever. God doesn't play musical chairs with his throne. He just sits there. And when all of the music and the noise of the world has stopped, he'll be where he's always been. Hebrews 1 and verse 8 says that your throne is forever. Your scepter is a scepter of righteousness. It always has been. It always will. Whether people acknowledge it or not, God doesn't ask for our permission to reign. He just reigns. The Bible says he sits on his throne because there's no need to stand up and defend it. There's no opposition that would dare walk in the heavenly highways or hallways and try to oppose him. He's in complete control. And even when Judah was heading into slavery for their rebellion toward God, even then, God was in complete control. And no matter what's happening in your life or my life this week or any other week, this reality is still true. We serve a God who still reigns, who's in complete control of everything. And that makes all the difference in this world and in the world to come. It's not just that God reigns, but we're sure that one day we'll reign with him. For 52 chapters in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah weeps about the condition of God's people. They rebelled. 
they sinned and their punishment was rightly deserved. This is exactly what they had coming to them. In Egyptian captivity, God said, let my people go. Babylonian captivity, God says, let my people stay. They've earned it for 70 years. And right when you're in your Bible reading, you want to jump past Lamentations to get to Ezekiel. God says, wait a minute. There's a tear filled book filled with hope. Dennis was so kind. I didn't know if we were going to get led in it tonight, but to lead us in Lamentations 3, 22 through 24, because that song encaptures not only the words of that verse, but the heartbeat of Scripture that when we've made a mess of our lives, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, though we have broken the covenant, his covenant, loyal love never comes to an end. They're new every morning. There'll be more tomorrow. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is our portion, says our soul. That means God's our all in all. Therefore, we will hope in him. If you're a Christian, maintain your hope. Keep your fork because the best is yet to come. And through tear-filled eyes and a world stained with sin and hardship, we serve a God who promises to bring us through. Tonight, if you need to obey the gospel and become a Christian, his mercies are new and they're reserved for you right now. That's a part of what the gospel is. It's God's mercy toward humanity saying you deserve death, but I'll take death so that you can enjoy everlasting and eternal life. If we can assist you in obeying the gospel, we would love to do that. If you want to study the Bible with us, we'd be happy to do that with you as well. If we can pray for you or pray with you, let us know how we can help you tonight as together we stand and as we sing.